This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Counselors looking to save face on LRT. You know, this is absolutely mind-boggling to me. How Terry, Counselor Terry Whitehead, who has... Uh, who has flip-flopped so many times and raised so many weird and wacky questions about LRT and has uh, objected to this uh, pretty much all the way along. And now all of a sudden in the 11th hour, if you take it to Eastgate Square, he's in. Where was this suggestion hmm, last year? When Premier Wynn was in town saying it had to have a spur line that connected it to go, which was the reason it was taken off, Eastgate was taken off uh, uh, the plan in the first place. Why didn't all of this come up then? And where is the money coming from to extend it back out? I would suggest the BRT network on the A line that goes up to service the mountain. But it is unbelievable what this council will do to, to, to push this city backwards all so they can save their own asses come election day. These people cannot make a decision if their life depended on it. And it's not all councillors. It's the same group of old farts that have been there forever that do not, they're just not capable of making the decisions that need to be made in this city that is growing uh, by leaps and bounds. This city is finally exploding. We do not have a council that has the capacity to deal with the problems of progress. They just do not have the brain matter to do it. And you know who we're talking about. And now in the 11th hour, just like the stadium, here we go again. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, you've got a list of objections as long as your leg. And all of a sudden now, if we push it back out to Eastgate Square, which is great, you know, if we push it out there, all of a sudden, all of the objections you had in the past are gone. This makes absolutely zero sense whatsoever. And all this is, is a group of the same old councillors who all make backroom deals and block vote together. It's the same councillors who now realize we are about to lose a project or at least screw it up like we did the stadium. And they're trying to save face because they realize if this thing hits the ground and and we drop the ball and nothing happens, that we will have blown a billion dollars. And it's going to be on these counselors' shoulders, heads, asses, whatever part of the body you want to pick. And they finally realize that. They finally realize that they're sounding like a bunch of old archaic farts. So now they're trying to look for an out. Okay, well, if you do this, then I'll say okay. Remember way back when? Remember a long time ago when the whole idea was, well, if they pay for it, we'll take it. And then they did or said they would. And now it's something else. And it's been something else every single week since this whole fiasco started by the same group of counselors who cannot, who do not have the balls to lead on something. And it's the same old characters that you keep voting in that keep this. Look around, Hamilton. Look what every other city around you has and you don't have because you've got inept counselors in council that are, that are holding back progress in this city. And if you don't, how many examples do you need? The link, the Red Hill, the, the stadium. 
my God, we have a beautiful stadium built in a part of town, built in a location in the middle of a residential area that the team was trying to get out of. And everybody looks at it like it's some sort of success. Are you kidding me? It's been two, or, it's been two years now. The novelty's worn off. We still have the same problems we always had. A great stadium in a bad location in the middle of a residential area. Unbelievable. And what happens is these counselors in the last minute have finally realized that, you know, they're going down with this ship either way. And if they let this thing slip through their fingers, they're going to look like fools yet again. So all of a sudden they're, okay, if we do this, then I'll, then I'll say it's okay. My God, it's like watching kids in a sandbox. These people just simply, some of them, not all of them, but the ones that have been there forever, they simply do not have the capacity to make the decisions of a growing city. And we've seen it yet again. It is unbelievable what is going on and how, like, I, I'm listening to the counselor Whitehead on Bill Kelly's show this morning, and it's like, my God, you're not even making any sense. It, it, it's unbelievable how you people put up with this council. And, you know, again, I don't want to paint them all with the same brush because there's a few of them down there that are pretty good, but most of them haven't been there for as long as the rest of them are the ones that I'm talking about anyway. The majority have, of course. But there's some new ones down there with some with new ideas and, and, and new blood and all of that. But my God, it's like we're dealing with Hamilton from 1972 here. These people do not have the capacity. They do not know what a modern city looks like. They're stuck in the steel days. And, you know, if this thing, if they pull this plane up before it hits the treetops, it'll be a freaking miracle. And if it goes down in flames, you can blame the same counselors that said, screw the stadium. Stick a fork in it. It's done. It's amazing how you people down at council cannot take a billion dollars from the government and do something productive with it. You are disgusting the way this council is, 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 it's, it's unbelievable. Poop or get off the pot. And you know, they're sitting walking around like they have no answers to any questions. They don't know what the hell's going on. It's, it's unbelievable how unqualified certain members of council are to be doing the job that they're in. Uh, obviously, all the players are involved in what's going on. Let's bring in uh, Ryan McGrill, see what he has to say. Editor of Raise the Hammer, he is with us now. Hello, Ryan. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Listen, it, it sounds like you've got some feelings about this issue, and <laughs> I, I just, you know, don't hold it in. It's not, it's not healthy. <laughs> i got to get it off my chest. Get it off your chest. So uh, let me, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. So what are your thoughts on all this, Ryan? Okay, so I'm I'm going to take a, a slightly more optimistic uh, uh, take on the issue than you know than uh, what I think is a, a very fair uh, rant you just gave. Uh, it's taken council a while to figure out that this is an amazing opportunity and that it would be crazy to blow it, uh, but they figured it out before it was too late. And uh, and I think we have to focus right now on the fact that these councillors recognize. That by by sabotaging this project by by turning down a billion dollars, they'd be making the biggest mistake, certainly of their political lives, possibly the biggest mistake in the history of the city. Uh, 
And now it sounds like they've come up with a way to stay on board with this project and to actually agree to move it forward with, from the sounds of it, some help from the province. Uh, you know, certainly the province, the province needs Hamilton to be, uh, to be a thriving city. They need us to be firing on all thrusters. They need us to be growing our tax base and growing our economy and getting our finances in order. That's why they're investing in this LRT. There's, there's no sort of narrow uh, political advantage to the Ontario Liberals for doing this. In fact, if anything, they might get punished for it. But they're doing it because, it, you know, it's hard for me to say this, but I think they're actually doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's what we need. And, uh, and so they have, you know, certainly a lot of skin in this game. Uh, all the skin, in fact, belongs to them. And, uh, and so they have been doing everything they can to try and give the council some way to say yes. And it sounds now like council has figured that out and that they actually are going to say yes. So I think we have to take that as an encouraging sign. And you are absolutely right, Ryan. Anything that takes this thing over the goal line, absolutely. Um, but you know, I guess my big question in all of this, why are we talking about Eastgate Square now? This was announced last year when Premier Wynne came in with the money and saying, you get it, but it's got to connect with a spur. Why didn't East, Why wasn't this debate held last year? It's a good question. I mean, if you go back to May 2015 and a number of council votes from the time the province announced this project until just before today, council consistently voted this current term of council to move the project forward. They voted to establish an LRT office and to appoint an LRT director. They funded it. They hired uh, Steer Davies Glebe, which is a, a transportation consultant that specializes in rapid transit in order to oversee the implementation of the line. They signed a memorandum of agreement with Metrolinx to implement the service, and they signed a real estate protocol with Metrolinx in order to make sure that they're able to acquire the properties they need. These are all material decisions based on what was funded in order to move the project forward. Uh, Obviously, politics being what it is, you have some councillors who, for various reasons, have, um, have, have kind of gotten some second thoughts and some misgivings. I think the fact that it doesn't go to Eastgate was always, uh, it was sort of an excuse not yeah. to move forward. Right. But, but but now the flip side of that... Well, we weren't going to get all the money. We weren't sure whether we were going to get all the money. That was an excuse at one time. Now, I mean, like, how many hoops do we have to jump through before we either make a commitment or not? But I think I think it's gone the other way now. Yeah. I think for certain councillors who I think recognize that actually this needs to happen, you know, but they've kind of maybe painted themselves into a bit of a corner... Extending it to Eastgate does... You are so polite, Ryan. It's amazing. (laughs) You should... (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Extending it to Eastgate does two things. The first and most important thing is that it actually is better for the project. It is. I agree. Going to Eastgate was always better than going to Queenston. I, I accepted... I was happy, you know, for the city to receive full provincial funding to Queenston Road with the understanding that you can't build an entire rapid transit network all at once. You have to do it in phases. You know, but it makes more sense to go to Eastgate. So, so objectively, the project is better if we get that confirmation of Eastgate funding. But the second thing it does is it allows councillors who are kind of on the fence, maybe not too sure how to sell the benefits of the project to their constituents. You know, for people living in Stony Creek, yeah. an LRT to connection to Eastgate makes it materially and physically more useful to them than having to get on a bus and travel to Queenston. So this project does make it better, and I think it makes it easier to sell, and I think it gives councillors who have been ambivalent 
an opportunity to say yes once again. All great points, Ryan. I just do not understand why this debate did not happen last year when the Premier showed up with the check in the hand and said, here's what I want. This is nothing, in my eyes, this is nothing short of just councillors who, like you said, finally realize that they're about to make the mistake of their life and are looking not only to approve the project, but because they painted themselves into a corner, they've got to save face to their constituents. And I mean, I I just think that's lowball politics, man. It's just, it's, it's, it's terrible what we've gone through in order to get here. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that's under the guise of constructive debate. I think this is this has been a, a mishmash at best. Let me ask you this, Ryan. So where does the money come from now to extend? Because obviously the reason it was cut back to the traffic circle was so it could provide a spur line down to uh, the GO station. Uh, Metrolinx has said no. Here's another thing I don't understand. How can there not be enough ridership to provide, to provide that spur line if the whole idea is, is to connect this to the GO station? Well, I, I guess the, um, I mean, it, it's a very short segment, yeah. and building LRT for two kilometers it's not doesn't really it, yeah. make a lot of sense. They I looked at how yeah. much it would cost, and, you know, they did a value for money study, yeah. and they found that the value is just not there. It's a huge amount of expense to move a fairly small number of people. The other important consideration, and this has kind of been missed in a lot of the debates around this, is that uh, CN provides the rail line that Metrolinx is using to get to the West Harbor GO station, mm-hmm. and CP uses the rail, owns the rail line that's being uh, used to get to the Hunter Street GO station. We're actually going to have all-day two-way train service to Hamilton coming to Hunter Street of at least a few years before it comes to the West Harbor. So that means we're going to have an all-day two-way GO connection right in the heart of downtown Hamilton, and it's going to have a direct connection to, yeah. our, to our LRT line along uh, Houston Street, which is going to be like a two- or a three-block high-quality pedestrian walkway connecting LRT with Gore Park. So, in fact, we do have that, that uh, connection to regional transit, which yeah. we've always needed, and we have it on the B line. Good so point. not only was, was the, the A-line spur was a lot of money for not a lot of benefit, and it no longer achieved the province's goal. For me, the fact that they changed the plan based on new information shows a willingness to compromise, a willingness to respond to the evidence, and a willingness to make adjustments when necessary to ensure the plan is successful. And I can accept that. That makes total sense. Uh, but, of course, obviously with cancelling the spur, it, would allow, it allowed more money for uh, BRT, a bus rapid transit, up the mountain and such. Uh, at the end of the day, there's only so much money. You know, you've got councillors on the mountain that says if it doesn't go to, uh, to, to Eastgate, it's not worth it. Um, yet, on the other hand, are, are they cutting up off their nose to spite their face in the sense that, you know, they're going to be perhaps, you know, wading into the, the pile of BRT money in order to extend it out to Eastgate? So, you know, the ones that were complaining they weren't getting enough bus service to the mountain now have perhaps dipping into that same pile of money to, to, to extend this out to Eastgate. And, and by the way, this is what we had when we originally started in the first place. <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the one thing to remember is that the, the money for the A-line, uh, it was not confirmed full capital funding. It was, you know, we're willing to use the money that we're saving on the B-line right. to put towards developing uh, an A-line spur. Uh, certainly, the councillors for Ward 7 and 8 seemed uh, really unimpressed with that. In fact, they're, they're not, the number one complaint seems to be, well, we can't afford to lose any lanes from Upper James. And a bus line that's not running in a dedicated lane is not BRT, it's just bus service. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that BRT or some kind of rapid transit on the A-line is still on the table for a few reasons. Number one, it's part of the city's long-term rapid transit strategy. And it's a good plan. Number two, we need to build up ridership along that north-south axis. Mm. You know, this is something that we should be investing in. 
Uh, but again, you can only do one thing at a time. And I think if we get this first LRT phase built, the benefits will be so obvious to so many people that the city will be clamoring to extend it. This is what happens in every other city that builds LRT. Uh, so are you optimistic about the vote today? Uh, as optimistic as I can be. I mean, it's, you can never really tell until until it actually happens how these things are going to play out. But uh, certainly the signals I'm hearing you know, from members of council, uh, the noises coming from the province suggest that we're... We're looking at a situation where council, a majority of councillors, will be able to get behind this. And once we do that, then we can move forward with the project. Because there are some tight timelines, and we have to get this thing done uh, and get a contract signed before it becomes a political football next year. One quick question, Ryan. I received a note from uh, Andrea Horvath uh, that she had sent to Premier Wynne saying that, uh, that, she should, that the government should do something uh, in order to help this along. is What about the provincial government? Have they done enough to help us there, here? Should they be doing something more? Should they, uh, you know, Andrea says, uh, make an informed decision and, let, and make sure that your position is known. Is, is the, do we need any more information from the, from the provincial government on this? They're paying 100% of the full capital cost for the entire project, and it sounds like they're also going to commit to extending it all the way to Eastgate. I don't really know what, how much more they could they could offer it to us other than just and here's another billion dollars of free money i mean at a certain point it gets ridiculous they're paying the entire freight on this thing i think they're doing about as much as we can expect the province to do ryan mcgrail sorry go ahead i was going to say this has never happened before in, in hamilton's history you know in the past when there have been rapid transit plans the province has offered up to 90 percent, but we've never gotten a hundred percent full funding before for anything like this so this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's never going to come again. Ryan McGreal has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer. Uh, Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Saul. I always enjoy it. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. LCBO workers, rather, have voted in favor of going on strike while the union fights for a new agreement. Uh, and, of course, they are citing uh, major concerns, including... Uh, privatization, selling beer and wine in uh, grocery stores, uh, this sort of thing. So we're asking you what your thoughts are on the LCBO uh, voting uh, to go on strike if needed. Uh, are you in, Do you support them in this, or are you in favor of beer and wine in grocery stores and such? To talk more about all of this, Sean Swayze is with us, Opsu, Opsu Local 287, and is with us now. Hello, Sean. How are you today? Good, thanks. All right, tell us about this uh, uh, vote, Sean, and what's on the horizon for Ontarians? Well, it was uh, an overwhelming um, uh, support yesterday with 93%, and it was basically just to get a mandate to get the employer to uh, start talking and negotiating at the table. So do you think we're going to see a liquor strike in Ontario? I can't comment on that. I think that um, we're just all what we're looking for is to... Uh, make sure that the employer actually starts negotiating a fair contract with us. And um, what are the major concerns, Sean? Uh, we talked about privatization. How big How big of a discussion is that in all of this? It's definitely one of the top uh, points out there, right, with um, the stuff going in the grocery stores and all that stuff. But we're, it's like job security and everything else that we have on the table. Uh, are you concerned that the majority of Ontarians want beer and wine in grocery stores? Are you concerned that perhaps the public won't support you on this strike? I think Ontario needs the LCBO. Um, right now it pays for teachers, hospitals, nurses, um, the roads. 
where that's and if you go into the Loblaws, you're just paying for Galen Weston's uh, next jet or something. Uh, let's be serious, though. Uh, it's the LCBO that's that's controlling that that's going in there. So, you know, at the end of the day, all of the taxes are still being paid, are they not? I mean, we're not going to lose any more. Ontario's not going to lose any more money if, if if the LCBO changes, are we? Ontario would be losing money because the money... The money from the LCBO, like I said, goes directly back to teachers and um, the paying for roads and hospitals, where the sales from Loblaws and all that stuff goes right back into. And what about know, the amount of money? Pocket. And what about the money? The amount of money that Loblaws pays the government in order to get that in the store? Like, I, I, I what you're suggesting here is the government is losing money by putting. Uh, beer into grocery stores and liquor stores. I would suggest that this government that needs money drastically, that would be the last thing that they would do. They would only do this if they were guaranteed and making money off of it. So how can you suggest or or sell to people that if we don't keep the LCBO, that all of this money goes directly to Loblaws and not to the government, when in fact it's the government that licenses all these people and collects the revenue from it anyway? But the profit, like I said, is going back to the Loblaws and all out of the world that have those. But, but they pay for that privilege, much like the LCBO. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the government's not losing money on putting it into private stores because those those private companies are paying the revenue that the LCBO would have earned anyway. So I don't understand how putting it into grocery stores is is ripping the province off of, of extra revenue. Because I think in order for the province to allow that, that would be one thing they would want guaranteed, and that's that the same amount of money is coming in every every year. The same amount. the The big concern, though, is like alcohol is a drug. It's not it's not an ordinary commodity, and it comes with significant associated harms. And we're trying to keep the general public safe. And I don't think. Sean, I, I, I appreciate that, but that's an entirely different issue, and we can talk about that issue. But you just said that the, the, the province is losing money if we get rid of the LCBO and put it into grocery stores, and I don't think that's true, Sean, because the government gets revenue from selling the rights to Loblaws, and I'm, I, I would be darn sure would probably make even more money by selling these contracts as opposed to the money they would generate in, in the LCBO. You just suggested that if the LCBO goes under, it's less money for the government. I don't believe that's accurate. Do you? I believe it is. I, I don't have the actual numbers and that stuff, but yes. Yeah, so do you honestly think the government is going to dismantle the LCBO if it loses revenue for them? I mean, this is a huge cash cow. The last thing there, and it's not about the LCBO, it's about licensing, selling of the product. So they're going to recoup any amount of money that they may have lost by accepting revenue from those companies that, that want to sell this stuff. I don't think that putting it into grocery stores is costing uh, revenue from uh, costing revenue for the government. I mean, that that's wrong to say, isn't it? Well, what, what we're asking for is the public should have a choice and not Kathleen Wynne doing all this stuff. I, we, we, we don't know how to trust her in that stuff, and we think the public should have the choice. Well, isn't that what we have? We have a choice of either buying it from the LCBO or buying it from a grocery store. If you eliminate a privatization, yours becomes a monopoly. There is no choice. Well, there's still, there's still the stores out there that have the stuff now. We're asking for everything to stop and have, let everybody else have a decision on this matter. 
who's everybody else on this uh, decision on this matter? I don't understand. The majority, the, the majority of Ontarians have already said they want beer and wine in grocery stores. That's your opinion. I believe that uh, most well, studies... It's not, our, it's, not our, it's not my opinion. That's what studies are. And, and that's what studies have shown. And, and that being said, the government w- wouldn't be doing this if A, they were losing money, and B, the public was against it. That doesn't make sense. I don't have all that information of all the, the money and all that. So uh, what is next, Sean, for this? What, 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 is the, what happens next? What's the timeline? How does this all work? Well, right now, because we had the overwhelming support from membership, um, that gave our bargaining team to go back today to start negotiating with the employer. And we're just hoping to uh, bargain a fair contract. So as long as talks go well, um, everybody will be happy. Are you worried that if the, LCB go, uh, the LCBO does go on strike, as they voted to, that that will just push the privatization ball farther down the road? Like, in, in a way from what you want? Like, if, if, if you head into summer and there's an LCBO strike, can't, don't you see the public reacting by saying, oh, yeah, I mean, how do you think they're going to react? Do you think they're going to react by saying, oh, yeah, we don't mind the LCBO is going on strike and we support them 100%? Or do you think they're going to say, that's enough of this, let's have more privatization? That's definitely a possibility, but... We're just going through the bargaining process, and we needed to get this support so that the team can actually negotiate because nobody wants a strike. I understand that, but uh, but again, you know, you're you're saying things like uh, if the LCBO is loses money or or or, uh, or sh- market share to things like grocery stores, that it's going to cost the province money. I don't believe that's the case, and you're also assuming that the majority of the people don't want privatization within the LCBO, and I don't believe that's accurate. So at the end of the day, what sort of, you know, what sort of leg do you have to stand on here, I guess is my question. I I understand your point, but, like, yeah, we're just negotiating, like, we're asking for the the public to have a choice and that we're... uh, All right. So, what happens next? Do we know? Do we have a timeline of any? What do we know when this may happen, or perhaps? Well, the the process, like they're at the bargaining table now, and it's hopefully that the employer has listened with the ninety three percent from membership and go from there. Like the the process would be if they're if they call a no board report, uh, there's uh, the seventeen uh, day uh, calendar uh, um, rule that you have to follow before you can actually go on legally go on strike or the employer can actually lock you out um are are, are are the employees or the union hoping that this somehow factors into the lcbo possibly getting into selling marijuana does that play a factor in any of this at all i don't think that is a factor at all i, I don't think we're even talking about that yeah that's from right. what I've heard, there's, there's been no conversation on that. So if there is, say, a strike, Sean, do we know when that would happen or a, a timeline roughly? Of, w- would it be a month from now, two months from now? We have absolutely no idea on that because hopefully they're bargaining at the table. And, yeah, it could be well, – there's, there's no time frame. It's, the, 
the bargaining team bargaining a, a fair contract for us. All right, Sean Swayze has been with us, Opsu Local 287. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, phone lines are open. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And uh, I'm going to just come right out and ask you, uh, do you support the LCBO if they go on strike? Are you supportive of having beer and wine in grocery stores? Um, <laughs> phone lines are open. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You know, with all due respect to, to Sean... To me, this is exactly what is wrong with unions today. I'm asking simple questions that they cannot answer. Just like I asked the union representative for CHCH how this is possibly a win when employees who have been there for 30 years get a couple of thousand bucks. How is that a victory? And again, you know, this person is suggesting that if, if we privatize, if we sell beer and wine in grocery stores, that it's taking shares away from LCBO and money out of the pocket of Ontario to pay their teachers and, as he, well, other unionized employees that he suggested, which is wrong because you can be damn sure that the Ontario government is going to use privatization as a way to generate income. Just like they're, the, the reason they're legalizing marijuana, it's to make money. And to suggest that if it's being sold in Loblaws as opposed to an LCBO, that the government is making less money off it is absurd. Because... When all this started way back when, grocery stores were questioning whether it was worth their money, to, worth their while to spend the money to get beer and wine into their stores because the price was prohibitively high. So for the union representative to suggest and to preach to the, to the choir that this is somehow going to take money out of the province of Ontario is completely wrong. And... We, we've been talking about privatization within the alcohol uh, industry for decades in this province. And every single year, the call for privatization goes louder and louder and louder. And when the union representative says things like choice, I believe he's contradicting himself. And to me, this is the problem. And, and, and you know... I think unions are there for a reason and they serve a purpose. But when they can't answer the questions that I'm asking, it says to me that the union's outdated and doesn't, isn't aware of, of, of the facts of the world we live in now. And it's just spewing propaganda like we're going to lose money if we, if, if we allow liquor or grocery stores to sell this stuff, that we're going to lose money. Like, that's just wrong. And again, the fact that he doesn't have better answers for the questions I'm asking, I would suggest is why unions are losing ground. Just like at CHCH, they did nothing for those people. Those people would have been better off not to be in a unionized shop and then had the ability to sue the employer, which is still in business.
You know, I've been fired five times, five times in my 30-some-odd year in, in radio. Every single time, four out of those five times, I got more than an adequate severance from a lawyer, which the company that, paid, that fired me paid for. Fair and substantial settlements. The one time I didn't was when I was in a union shop in St. Catharines. And that's exactly what happened to CHCH. So, again, I think it's up to the unions to modernize and stop using these silly old tactics from the 1970s, which is basically just scaring people. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Do you support the LCBO or do you support beer and wine in your grocery store? Ned, what are your thoughts on this? Scotty. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, listen, that uh, <laughs> that interview we had with the uh, union rep, it was very painful. I was gasping in the truck. I had to pull over to talk to you. <laughs> you're, very, you're very good. I was just feeling... I'm just feeling you're the new Tucker Carlson on CHCH. Oh, man. So what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? You know, listen, Every uh, I try to get on the radio every year or two whenever this topic comes up, and I'm always saying the same sort of thing again. But in the last few years uh, throughout southern Ontario here, the best buildings in Ontario, by, by without question, are the LCBOs, mm. the lighting, the everything. You know, yeah. and to suggest for one They're well-appointed. Oh, the well-appointed. And this fellow keeps talking about fair. You know, and I'm thinking, are you telling me that things aren't fair for them the way it is right now? Their work schedules, their compensation they're getting, their benefits they're getting, they're fair. You're exactly right. They want to keep at a monopoly, keep squeezing everyone. And as soon as you throw in lines like, we're paying for teachers and roads... Yeah, I mean, come on. Do you think privatize? If you don't think the government's going to use privatization as another way to make money, just like with pot, you're nuts. And, you know, if I was a union member, I'd be pissed because these guys and what you heard, that's not representing me. That's not looking out for my best interest. Not a clue. Not a clue. No, that's that's dark ages thinking. That's thinking from 40 years ago. I grew up in northern Ontario, and my father worked in a mine, and they had unions then, and they needed unions for the safety of those guys. My dad didn't speak English. Stones were falling on him. He didn't want to say anything when he came home hacked up. You know, that was a different story. Yeah. Unions protected uh, the safety, the breathing. The guy was in mud all the time. Yeah. You know, but he was too honorable, too proud to actually say anything. Unions were necessary. But to suggest for one, you know, I drive to Florida a few times a year. We stop in small towns all the way. And when we talk about liquor stores and, and wine stores and beer yeah. stores, and I tell them it's privatized and government-run in the state, they look at me like I'm nuts. I know. You know what I've noticed? When I'm watching Sportsnet or we've been watching playoff hockey and we're getting the Western feed, we keep seeing ads for Liquor Depot, which is a private company out West that sells out there. And it's like I'm watching this and it's like, why can't I buy there? Exactly. It, where I am in Florida, you can buy a half yeah. gallon uh, of uh, uh, Canadian club with the handle on it, 1995 <laughs> in Florida. It's actually 1695 on sale, and it's a half gallon. That would be like 140 dollars here. I know. But the unions want to build their buildings, their benefits, their stress leave, their sick yeah. leave. The They're blah, a middleman. They're a middleman that's top heavy, just like the government. It's unfortunate that they don't go back to their roots. And unionized uh, and- should be unions should be illegal and outlawed. 
period. There's right. enough rules and regulations to protect everyone. Human rights code, labor laws, everything. And like yeah. you said, with the judicial system the way we have it right now, with the access to the Internet, we don't need these outdated unions anymore. It's better for the taxpayer, and in the long run, it's better for those employees. Just like you said, when you got fired a few times, of course, there's trauma when you get fired. But yeah. in the long run, it's for the betterment of everybody and yourself included. Rock and roll, buddy. Thanks, Thanks man. Much. Appreciate it. Adam, what are your thoughts? you support privatization or back the union with their uh, strike vote? Adam, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Go ahead. Man. How you doing? Good. Good. So uh, there's a couple things I heard with the last person. I believe his name is Ned. Um, to say that unions are not necessary anymore, I think, is bogus. Um, those legislations, uh, the regulations that surround working conditions, they weren't just handed down. They were fought for. Absolutely. And, and everybody's agreeing with that, Adam. Everybody agrees with that 100%. But what I'm saying is they haven't modernized beyond that. We're there now. You know, uh, people aren't dying like they used to. Do they still need to be there? Absolutely they do. But you know what? They're, they're, they, they've got to modernize how they do things. I mean, what we just heard, just that's not representation. No, that was an unfortunate interview. Um, but we look at SOBs, we look at companies, private companies, uh, you know, maybe they're lost leaders. Um, Either way, they're doing it because it's good for the bottom end. Now, Thanks for the call, Adam. Got to run just because I got to get more on it as quickly as I can. And, and you know, I just I just want more out of unions. I'm not like I'm trying to get rid of them. It's just I really do think they got to modernize. Keith, what are your thoughts? You know, I have to agree uh, with a lot of what your first caller said. I believe his name was Ned. Uh, he was spot on with a lot. My second point, too, is I think really with the way things have gone, especially government unions, they've become basically the creature they were trying to fight against. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, they're, they're outdated, and they've become essentially the opposite side of the coin of what they're trying to fight. And finally, I guess my last point was, is I'm neither on the side of the union or the LCBO. I'm on the side of the consumer. Um, I mean, it's great to go to an LCBO. They have a phenomenal selection. Everything you want is there. However, sometimes it's a heck of a lot easier just to run down to the grocery store and grab a couple cans and go home and then try to, instead of trying to fight through and get to uh, an LCBO. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it. We'll take Gary one more time. And you know what? We'll take this uh, after 1 o'clock, too. So if you want to hang on, we will take a couple of calls after the news at 1. Gary, what are your thoughts on this? I can't understand why they're complaining. They have a monopoly. They don't take bottles back. All they do is stand behind a counter, like if you went into a grocery store, a girl at the till, making $26 an hour plus benefits. I'd be happy. Thanks for the call, Gary. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This is just breaking news. Kevin O'Leary has dropped out of the federal conservative race, uh, endorses Maxime Bernier for the conservative leadership. He says the reason uh, he is dropping out of the race is that he cannot win Quebec. And if he cannot win Quebec with enough seats, then, of course, uh, he fears he will lose. And he said, you know, uh, losing was not an option for him. Uh, he's not in there uh, to lose and then take another job within the government um, in some form, I guess, you know, no matter what he would do. Uh, or no, you know, I'm not sure what he would do at that point. But uh, so obviously he has decided if he cannot win Quebec, if he cannot take the, the whole thing, then uh, he's not going to run and putting his support behind uh, Maxime Bernier. So there you go. Uh, we'll certainly ask our next guest about that. And the federal NDP have been calling out Justin Trudeau over not facing the same consequences as those slapped with pot charges. NDP leader Mulcair said that Trudeau's assertion that he wants things to be fairer uh, is abject hypocrisy. 
and that amnesty should be given on all charges for small amounts of pot. What has what, what transpired or how we got here was that Trudeau, uh, I believe it was, was doing a uh, report with Vice, uh, said that um, his younger brother, when he was still alive, was uh, charged with possession of marijuana and uh, his father, Pierre Trudeau, uh, took care of it, and uh, no charges, uh, there were no charges. Uh, the charges were dropped or thrown out uh, as a result of all of that. And, of course, the NDP has been calling for uh, the laws that have charged people who, who have now criminal records because of pot convictions that they should have an amnesty and that they should be, those charges should be, should be, uh, tossed out and there should be no criminal record if in fact we move towards legalization uh obviously Mulcair calling this a hypocrisy simply because uh trudeau family had the wherewithal and the means to do this whereas the average family doesn't to talk more about all of these issues uh issues michael tobe is with us former speechwriter for stephen harper columnist he is with us now hello michael how are you today i'm good scott how are you doing i'm doing very well and i can't believe we're going to have a conversation and not talk about trump yeah, I know. It's kind of rare, isn't it? It is. Have we ever had one without Trump? I no, think this might be the first time for us, Michael. Exactly. Where we're going in un- unchartered territory here. All right, first of all, your reaction to Kevin O'Leary dropping out of the race. Well, see, we are talking about it. Candace Trump. Yeah, um, there you go. Um, I'm absolutely shocked. I did not see that coming. I don't think anyone saw that coming, quite frankly. Um, I, I, you know, the rationale behind... O'Leary's decision to drop out is also kind of puzzling to me, because although historically winning Quebec has usually been the, the key to actually becoming the next prime minister of this country, we've also seen many examples where it doesn't happen that way. In fact, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, never won Quebec, and somehow or other he won three elections and became prime minister and won a majority government without winning many seats in Quebec. So I don't really understand Mr. O'Leary's logic, especially because he was running as either the front runner or if he was in second place, he was only probably a point or two behind most likely Maxime Bernier, who I think now has basically been given the red carpet and will probably run this thing pretty easily at this stage. I just don't quite understand it. And I don't even see why he would be looking for an opt-out when he's leading, because he can't determine now how he'll do in a couple of years in Quebec before he's had some time to get his feet wet, to put policy out there, and to see if anything he says or does would resonate with Quebec voters. I, I just don't quite understand what's happened here. What would he be basing this on? Where, how would he, what sort of information would this or research would he have that would, give him, that would you know, bring him to this conclusion? I don't know what research you could have that within two years you're not going to be able to get enough seats in Quebec. Again, as I said, historically, the Tories have struggled in Quebec over the years. Obviously, Brian Mulroney did not, and that's a classic example. But most conservatives, and you know, whether it be the old progressive conservatives, the old Reform Party, the old Canadian Alliance, and even the current Conservative Party of Canada, it's, just, it's not necessarily a barren wasteland in Quebec, but it's a very, very hard road to travel, and we know that. I'm just astonished that Mr. O'Leary has decided in 2017 that there is absolutely no way in 2019 he can win a province that won't necessarily make or break his way to getting the keys to 24 Sussex Drive. I just don't understand what he could be basing it on. 
I don't know what polling data he's looking at. I don't know what internally or externally he's actually observed that has led him to this conclusion. And my sense is, quite frankly, without having any obviously hard evidence, that something else has triggered this and that Quebec is just an easy thing to fall back on. Because at, the, at this late stage, with the vote being held in May 27th, which is roughly a month from now, there's no rational reason to drop out except that, as I said, I think he's using Quebec as an excuse because right now I don't think anybody, even the last place person in the Tory leadership race, whoever it is, would be thinking that, you know what, if I somehow won, I couldn't win Quebec. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you said uh, there must be something else that triggered that. I think so. Any sort of assumption? What, could it be? Nothing. Could it simply just be that he changed his mind? Maybe he's got a better business deal brewing down the road? Look, I'm a pretty confident person. I've been observing politics for more than 20-odd years of my life publicly, and obviously privately I've been done for a lot longer. I usually can come up with several reasons for just about anything that happens as to why someone did this. Could it be a business deal? Yeah, you're absolutely right, except there's no evidence of that. There's been no discussion of that. There hasn't even been in, say, the, the yellow journalism circles or the cheat sheets, there's been nothing even mentioning something of this nature. Other than, I guess, other than business relations or something to do with his family, if there is anything going on, God forbid, and it'll obviously come out in some time, this just sounds like an excuse to me at this stage. I mean, could it be that Quebec is the reason behind it? Of course. There's certainly no rational reason why it couldn't be. It's just not a rational reason to leave a political leadership race after all these months and with about roughly about a month to go when everything is working in your direction and it looks like you probably would become the next leader of this party. Um, I mean, look, from a personal point of view, I'm very happy to be done with, with Kevin O'Leary. I never really felt he was much of a conservative. I thought a lot of his comments that were very anti-military and against the war in ISIS, I thought were very arrogant and foolish. I have, you know, he said once on another radio station that he didn't regard himself as a capitalist, just a person who creates jobs when he spent most of his career promoting capitalism as a means of success and as a means of creating his own success. I just think he's just a master of contradictions, and who knows whether this is a legitimate reason or not a legitimate reason will come out over time. I think that a lot of people in the media, and in politics too, are probably scratching their heads like I am, because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Then again, Kevin O'Leary's candidacy hasn't made a lot of sense either. Uh, how did or does Quebec feel about O'Leary? Was there any sort of research or numbers going around that, that were showing that they disliked him or, or, or wouldn't vote for him? I've never seen a study that way. I mean, I certainly know that Mr. O'Leary spent time in, in Quebec, if I'm not mistaken, and I apologize if I'm wrong, I think he was born in Quebec, so he certainly understands the province quite well, even though obviously he left it many, many years ago. And naturally, he's not, bi, you know, he's not bilingual. His French is very poor at best. But there's no reason why he obviously couldn't pick it up. There's no reason why any politician, even someone like Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, who opted not to run for this party, couldn't have picked it up at a later date. So I, is it possible that Mr. O'Leary felt he couldn't break through in Quebec, and if he struggled in that province, that it would then sort of boomerang at, or have a boomerang effect and hit him eventually in other provinces? Perhaps. But he has a lot of people behind him who have experience in politics, you know, from the Mulroney era, the Harper era, etc. 
I can't believe any of these advisors, and I know several of them, they're very bright, talented, experienced people, would actually tell him that, you know, your chances of winning Quebec are about zero, ergo, everything else is going to collapse like a house of cards. It's time to get out. I don't think any experienced politico would ever say that. And it just, again, as I said before, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record on air, it just leads me to wonder if there isn't something else going on here. As you suggested, Scott, maybe it's a business deal. As I am sort of alluding, it's something personal that perhaps will come out. But whatever the reason is, I think that a lot of conservatives will go into now the May 27th convention, especially those who were backing Mr. O'Leary, and there were quite a few, just wondering what on earth is going on here and... If Mr. O'Leary is now backing Maxime Bernier, who I certainly think is a good choice, I have decided to slightly pick Andrew Scheer over Mr. Bernier, but either way I would be happy with either person as the leader. I think that a lot of people will now start saying, well, if Maxime Bernier has been tapped by Kevin O'Leary as the person who can break through in Quebec and do well in the rest of Canada, maybe we should just go along with that. It could make what seemed to be or appeared to be a very busy night for May 27th, it could be over by the first or second ballot based on the fact that the man who was either number one or number two in the leadership race has tapped his rival. It's quite astonishing. So O'Leary's excuse is he doesn't believe he can get the support in Quebec in right. order to win. Does Bernier have enough support across the rest of the country to win? That's a good question. I mean, based on the numbers that we were seeing, and sometimes it's hard to tell with um, leadership polls, especially because the percentages that you're looking at and the success you have in a particular province amongst grassroots supporters doesn't necessarily translate into province-wide support. So I think we can put it this way. Maxime Bernier is either number one, number two, or number three on most scorecards, that being conservatives who are going to go in and pick a leadership candidate. So Bernier has ranked high virtually the entire time and virtually since the day that he declared that he was going to run. So I think that certainly conservatives across Canada, province by province, are probably pleased with him. The problem with Maxime Bernier, he has a bit of a history, as people may remember, about an ex-girlfriend that he had who had apparently at one point yep. been involved with or dated a, motor, a biker of some sort, and he left a whole suitcase full of government, secret government documents at her place when they were either having trouble or he was just sort of going back and forth for weeks on end. If those things had been opened up or stolen or taken away, and we don't exactly know what information was there or what it was pertaining to, it still would have been obviously very embarrassing for the Harper government if it had come out. I'm not saying that obviously Maxime Bernier hasn't moved past that, and I think other conservatives have moved past that. But a lot of Canadians will be reminded of it, and if Bernier becomes the next Tory leader, you can bet your bottom dollar mm. that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the NDP leader, whoever it comes, whoever replaces Tom Mulcair, the Green Party, the Bloc, etc., they're going to remind people of that as much as they possibly can because of the thing that's being held against him. And as well, it should be noted that Bernier has been a minister for the Crown, which is obviously an important title. He has never led anything, that being a provincial party or any sort of a party or been prime minister of a country, etc., etc. He doesn't have an enormous amount of experience. Quite frankly, none of the leadership candidates really did, but he really doesn't. And with this extra baggage he had from years ago, 
it's not necessarily going to make or break his career. It doesn't necessarily mean he will or will not become the next Prime Minister of Canada at any point in time. But it, these are things that you can obviously use against him pretty easily. So whether Canadians are going to be more forgiving or less forgiving than Conservative Party members still remains to be seen. Can Bernier beat Trudeau? Uh, 2019, as much as I would like to see Trudeau beaten in 2019 and beaten badly, I don't think anybody can do it right now. And I, I'm being very even, even two years out? No, no, I don't. Trudeau, well, certainly the honeymoon period for Justin Trudeau is over, whatever you want to call the honeymoon period. The, you know, the time when Canadians are happy with him, enthused by him, the media is happy, enthused by him, that period of time is definitely over. But Justin Trudeau now has the advantage of eventually going up against a new Tory party leader and a new NDP party leader. Those, that little advantage right there really does help you because of all things, and it's hard to believe, Justin Trudeau will eventually become the establishment candidate of the three major parties. In other words, the politician who's been there the longest, even though in reality he's only been in federal politics for several years. It's an advantage, and as well, a lot of people know him internationally. His popularity is still pretty high overall. A lot of Americans, for example, like him. I think a lot of these things will help him. Even if people like me believe that he's just, is just a very poor leader, he doesn't have a lot of understanding of policy, he speaks very poorly in front of a microphone, and he doesn't represent Canada as well as other prime ministers, including Stephen Harper and others have in the past. And I'll even throw in uh, Paul Martin and, and Jean Chrétien to that role as well. Even though I wouldn't have voted for them, they obviously had experience and knew how to represent Canada on the international stage. Justin Trudeau really has not succeeded in that venture, yet when you compare him to a number of people who will either be placeholders for their respective party or perceived as lightweight leaders for their respective parties, I think that actually gives Justin Trudeau a huge advantage. So in two years' time, it would be hard for me to believe that Trudeau could fall from grace that easily. Then again, to be very honest with you, Two years before he became prime minister, Justin Trudeau was sitting in third place in most opinion polls. Yep. So you're right. Anything can happen. Uh, all right. Let's talk about Trudeau and the pot scenario. Uh, told a reporter that he brought up the story of his, his uh, brother, of course, uh, yes. being charged and that uh, dad made it go away. Uh, can he say that and then not grant amnesty to everybody else that's been affected by this once the law does pass to legalize marijuana? You're right, and that's sort of what the NDP is arguing as well, that it looks a little bit hypocritical if you're doing one thing and then, do, and then saying the other. Absolutely true. Now, look, obviously until Justin Trudeau mentioned this about his brother, Michel, we, most of us did not even know that that charge had ever occurred, or if we did... As time goes along, you just forget these things, Scott, and that's sort of what happens. And I think that's the way the Trudeau family would have actually preferred it. Unfortunately, what this does, and I, I don't actually know what the strategy was for Justin Trudeau to bring this up, because I don't think it really helps his case at all. Trudeau has been attacked for many years as a privileged individual, coming from, shall we say, a family of political royalty. It's, it's a silly comment, but that's, you know, that's the way people look at it. Some Canadians look at the Trudeaus as akin to the Kennedys in the United States. Mm -hmm. It seems a little preposterous, but that, that alliance does certainly exist. For that reason, 
when you hear a story about one of tr- one of his brothers, this being one of Justin Trudeau's brothers, uh, getting a pot charge removed because of his father's interve- intervention, it sort of shows again how a privileged individual can sort of escape the law, escape anything else, yet Justin Trudeau, you know, in the minds of the opposition parties, the NDP, the Tories and others, sort of looks a bit hypocritical, the way he's kind of balancing that with, you know, the way that the pot legislation has been sort of muddling its way along, how he seems very convinced that it'll come in next Canada Day, that being Canada Day 2018, even though you have to have really have provincial assent as well, and a lot of the provincial governments are really not on, on t- in line with it, and a lot of police departments are not quite are not terribly pleased with the way the Trudeau Liberals are handling it, for fear that they won't be able to use their powers properly. Even though obviously the Trudeau government says that no, if anything, that the police will have plenty of control in terms of charging people who should be charged, and for others they won't have to obviously face these charges by the possession of a few joints or marijuana decriminalization, if you'd like. This is unfortunately one of the risks with marijuana legalization, in my view, Scott. Not just the fact that it will be sold in some sort of environment, either controlled, say, or regulated by the LCBO, or operated in separate government ventures. Like, no one knows exactly how it's going to be set up specifically and where you can physically go to purchase marijuana. But yes, unfortunately, stories like this that involve the Trudeau family, especially when a Trudeau is the one who's going to change the rules about marijuana, makes you wonder, A, if this whole motivation comes from the fact that his brother had this charge all these years ago, and B, the fact that he's not been handling this so brilliantly to the point that a lot of people are very, very confused as to how it's going to be legalized, what the limits are going to be, Will this prevent all people from being charged? What about existing marijuana depots? How are they going to be handled? It's just been very, it's been messily handled. And maybe in the end, it'll all tie itself up nice and neat in a little bow. But it makes you wonder. Michael Tobe has been with us, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.